If you've ever feared not being considered the real parent, if you're unsure how you can coexist in your child's heart along with their birth mother or birth father, if you're curious about how an adoptee tries to earn their love from their adoptive parents, this episode will speak to you. Sarah Easterly, adoptee, mother, and writer, takes us into the secret fears and desires of an adopted child, and she does so with gentleness and grace. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Long View. This is a podcast brought to you by the people at adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption and longtime blogger at lavenderlose.com. I'm a mom through domestic infant adoption to a daughter and a son now in their late teens. And let me tell you, it's been a ride. Think of any road trip you've taken. There are ups and there are downs, and it's always an adventure. You're always glad for the trip, and afterwards you might on occasion end up thinking, if I knew then what I know now. Regarding your adoptive parenting journey, we aim to help you know now. Our guest today is Sarah Easterly. I'm so excited to have Sarah here. She came on my radar earlier this year and I got to meet her at a book signing. We are going to talk today about the one thing that can grip the heart of an adoptive parent with a fist full of fear. This is the concept of real, as in coming from another soccer mom. Oh, he's adopted. Does he know who his real parents are? And also in coming from your beloved child. You're not my real mom which cuts even deeper. So Sarah Easterly is an adult adoptee. She's the author of the award-winning Searching for Mom, a memoir. It won the gold medal of the Illumination Book Awards. I believe she's run, um, won two subsequent awards, including one just recently. Sarah's essays and articles have been published by Dear Adoption, Psychology Today, Feminine Collective, Her View from Home, Godspace, the Newfeld Institute, and the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Sarah is on staff with the Newfeld Institute, which studies attachment and child development. Sarah is also a mom with two tenacious daughters and the daughter of two amazing moms, both her adoptive mom and her birth mother. Sarah enjoys supporting mothers in their journeys and has a passion for helping the non-adopted better understand the hearts of adopted children. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Lori. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, so happy to have you. Tell us briefly your story of becoming an adoptee, the parts that you're able to share. Sure. Um, well, I was adopted when I was two days old, and I was born in Billings, Montana. I, my adoptive family had connections there. My aunt and uncle lived there. Um, it was a domestic, obviously private adoption. Um, that took place in the 1970s. Uh, I'd been always told that it was a gray market adoption. I never really knew what that meant, other than I knew my story that I was brought to my aunt and uncle's house in the middle of the night where my mom and dad were waiting for me. Uh, I, I did love that story. It just sounded so kind of exotic and <laughs> exciting. And I guess I've always been a writer at heart. And so um, stories like that were always kind of fun and captured my imagination. Um, and that was most of all I knew about my story um, up until my reunion. I had been told that my parents were 15, and it turns out that wasn't the case, but that is kind of where my, my mind had been. Um, they were a little bit older. My birth mother was about to turn 18. Um, but then now that I'm in reunion and in an open relationship with my birth mother, um, there's more to the story. The 
OB who delivered me was kind of known as the go-to guy for what I'm putting in air quotes um, that you can't see as the unwed birth mothers at the time. Um, and my birth mother had had a change of heart. She'd wanted to keep me, but he shamed her and kind of put an end to that, which, um, you know, was fairly common in that era. Um, and I think that's what the gray market was all about. It was, you know, probably a little bit um, crossing that line of ethics, but it was also perfectly legal at the time. And I'm sure that the OB um, and just society in general looked really frowned upon um, situations at that time like that um, of, you know, unplanned pregnancies and single mothers and um, really believed that they were doing the best thing. So, um, it worked out for my parents, um, and, um, you know, um, I had a wonderful, what I would call a normal middle-class upbringing, um, and um, grew up in Colorado, and had two very loving, loving parents, um, for sure, so um, what I have come to see is I you know, would have been very, you know, it's, it was, it's very kind of sad, bittersweet story with my birth mother, but um, I I landed in a really wonderful home too. So I have to tell you when I got to that part of your book and I um, put myself in the place of your birth mom and realized how disempowered women were in that time period and uh, all that shame. And uh, it, it just made me so sad for the both of you and for your, and for your mom. Like there's no winning. There's no win out of all of that. No, it's true. It's, um, yeah, very, it's, it's sad. It's <laughs> sad all the way around. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and it's, you know, it's, there's also joys all around too. Um, and joys to be back in reunion and to now have a relationship, um, after all those years, I feel, you know, I love saying that I do have two wonderful moms now. I mean, it's, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I like how you redirected that, that, um, Adoption is so complex. It can be two opposite things at the same time. It can be sad and it can be joyous. And uh, I think sometimes we don't really get that when we're, um, until we live it. Yes. Um, when I listen, when I overhear adult adoptees talking in their spaces that they've let adoptive parents into, and, and when I read memoirs of adult, adult adoptees, which I highly suggest that adoptive parents do a lot of listening, but one thing I keep hearing about is this phrase coming out of the fog. What is, what do adoptees mean when they say coming out of the fog? And what was it like for you to come out of the fog? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I, I would say no matter kind of what we were just alluding to, no matter what the noble, tender, and loving or necessary circumstances are related to adoption, when there is a bond um, between a mother and the infant in utero, um, scientifically that creates something significant. And so there, there is fallout um, when that bond is disrupted. And we don't always want to look at that um, in the adoption space. It's, it can be painful to look at that and it can be painful for adoptees to look at that. I see it as being able to hold, coming out of the fog for me, I, I often explain it as it's being able to hold the both and when it comes to adoption, not the either or. Mm -hmm. And anyone can be in the fog, um, not just adoptees, but I think it's particularly hard for adoptees to, to look honestly at it. Um, when we're children, one, we have so much emotion and it's just too much emotion for consciousness. 
um, for starters. And in many cases, um, and um, you know, a lot of cases, it's pre-verbal experience. So um, how do you have words for something that's, that these feelings that are felt before you learn words? Um, our grief tends to be largely unrecognized, um, you know, and I know having lost, you, you know my story through having read the book, but having lost my mother, when your mother dies, um, people rally around you with support and sympathy and they, they're there to listen. Your good friends are there to listen. Um, people bring you casseroles. Um, but when we lose our first mothers um, through the process of adoption, nobody's bringing casseroles and, and it would be weird, you know, <laughs> um, you know, that that's just not happen. But, but that doesn't mean that, that, um, that grief isn't there and it can be confusing if there's no outlet for the grief. Um, and, um, you know, just, uh, how do you make sense of that? And, um, you know, all alone, all alone. So it's hard and it's, um, you know, just something that you can just kind of keep stuffing to the background. The third thing I would say about it is that many of us as adoptees become like incredible people pleasers, um, which I know is kind of an existential thing a lot of them go to. But um, I think after we've lost our first mothers, we can work so hard unconsciously, we don't know we're doing this. Um, you know, I, this has taken an adult perspective to go back and fill it in, but we work so hard to keep our next mothers close. Um, we want to take on their beliefs or what we perceive to be their beliefs, even if they're not <laughs> pouring the beliefs in what we think those beliefs should be. We assume because we want to keep our parents close. Um, we've, we've got to, it's, you know, our brain is doing that for a reason for survival. And I want to ask you more about the good adoptee. But before we get off of um, coming out of the fog, I wanted to ask you if developmentally, is there a time when that processing starts to happen? Does it happen for everyone? Um, is there something that triggers it? Is it an innate curiosity for people who do come out of the fog and some who don't come out of a fog? What do you know about that? Well, you know, I developmentally, I, I was slow at it. So I'm probably not the spokesperson. I mean, when I see um, adoptees in their 20s, or, who are much further along, I'm like, Oh, my gosh, that I, I that took me till 40. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I think, as adoptees, you can kind of anticipate an extended adolescence with us. And when that adolescence is going to end, it depends on so many factors and how deep those wounds are and how repressed they are and how much room and space there was given for them to unfold. Um, many adoptees will say, and you know, obviously not all adoptees choose parenthood, but many of those who do um, will say that becoming a parent starts to pull them out of the fog. And that's for sure what happened for me. That was definitely um, becoming a mother. And I waited until later in life to become a mother. So that, you know, maybe had I done that, so done that sooner, then um, I might have come out of the fog a little bit sooner. But it was for sure becoming a mother. That and, and is that because of the biological ties that you have with this human being and seeing somebody who um, looks more like you and all of that? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, there were three things. I think the, you know, that was for sure the first one is just this first time, this inaugural window, seeing my genes and studying the first traces um, 
of my very first blood relative and um, just, you know, really pondering genes and who we're related to, where our different traits come from, how we're connected to our family members. Um, I had a lot of frustration around that because my daughter, everywhere we went, people were saying she looked like my husband and that wasn't, I, that frustration just kept building because I, and I didn't realize at the time why it was so frustrating, but I needed her to look like me. I needed to see some mirroring, some genetic mirroring in my family member. Um, the other, the second thing I would say about um, how motherhood for me started to pull me out of the fog was that it forced me to question a long that I had had that I didn't like babies. I was very reticent about becoming a mother, um, just kind of, we didn't talk about it and it just sort of happened. And I think looking back now, that's because I just had such weird mixed feelings about babies. When people, coworkers would bring them into the office, I'd kind of just have interest, you know, oh yeah, cute, you know, and I just wasn't interested. But um, I think that all went back to myself as a baby and, um, I didn't want to face the fact that babies were precious. I think there was a story I had told myself that I wasn't precious enough to keep. Um, and so babies in general, it was easier just to kind of say, oh, babies aren't anything special than to actually realize I was one of those two and I was special as well. So that, you know, and then you can't hold your own baby in your arms and deny <laughs> that that's a precious being and a miracle and something so outstanding. Um, so it, it just kind of started to shift that story. I, I'd, you know, that false, that false story I had about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were other flawed beliefs that got questioned and challenged as well. Um, and some of them, just the nature of adoption too. But, um, you know, one, I think, you know, just, I went into parenting deciding, okay, my kids are never going to have any wounds, which, um, you know, <laughs> I had wounds. So I wanted to make sure my kids weren't going to suffer. And I think, you know, a lot of us go into parenting that way. Um, I, um, you know, started doing it. I did attachment parenting via baby wearing, and I was kind of looking at it almost as a checklist or a job that I was trying to master. Um, and, then just kind of kept learning some lessons. My youngest daughter would just pull my chin and kind of want to want to look deep into my eyes. And here I'm thinking I'm doing it all right. And yet I'm, I'm missing something really significant and that is connection. And, um, you know, I think I had this false belief because of the nature of adoption that mothers are replaceable. You know, that's a little bit of the, you know, it's an, not an intended mess of, message of adoption. Nobody ever <laughs> just wants to outright say that, but that was a message I had that carried over into myself as a parent. Um, but I kind of realized, no, mothers aren't replaceable like that. Um, you know, obviously, um, I still thought and wondered a lot about my birth mother, and um, that d- didn't negate the fact that I had a wonderful mother, <laughs> my adoptive mother, but I, um, they weren't the both and again, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it really started to teach me too, that loving deeply is really challenging for adoptees. Um, we're afraid the rug's going to be pulled out from underneath us. Um, you know, our brain has learned that and responded accordingly just to protect us. And so it is a default in, especially in our closest relationships. And, um, you know, it's heartbreaking that it's also extends to our children, but, um, 
it's just that fear, that fear of intimacy. And it takes a lot of work for me. It's continual work for me to unlearn that, um, those flawed beliefs that I just took on. No one taught me these things. It just is what my brain did. So for you, the fog clearing brought, um, made you question some of the really tightly held beliefs you had that you didn't even know were beliefs, like you weren't worthy at the beginning, that mothers are replaceable, and that everything could change um, like that. Is that kind of what coming out of the fog can be? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what it was for me. And And so it makes sense then that you don't want that second mom to disappear too. So you have to be really good. You have to be worthy. You have to be good. So let's talk about, um, and you do this in your book, what a good adoptee does. What Can we equate being a good adoptee with being a healthy person? Um, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that word good is so charged. Um, you know, it's, it's tricky. And that comes from Betty Jean Lift, Lifton. Um, that's the phrase she, she termed. And it, when I learned it, I thought, oh, that's, that's it. You know, that she, she knows. Um, she knew what she was talking about. Um, for me, it was always trying to measure up, trying to stand out, to be good for my parents, to be good for my teachers, um, wanting to be you know, better and best and, you know, um, working to win love, proving my loyalty and devotion, saying the things I thought my mom wanted to hear. So, you know, from the outside, when any, anybody's doing that, it's, it's hard to, hard to look at that as unhealthy because it's, um, who doesn't love a well-behaved child? I mean, I think it, I, 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 my children are not adopted, but I think all the time, gosh, I wish they were robots. Like it would be so much easier. You know? I hear you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would, and society needs and thrives on this too. I mean, that's how our society, it works when we're all being good. Um, it serves everybody. Um, so it's not to say that we want to groom, <laughs> I'm putting in air quotes, bad. I don't think there's any bad children, but it's not that we want to groom bad children. But um, I think just knowing the dynamic is there's a huge temptation for adoptees to do that. It's not healthy for our kids feeling like they have to work for our love. That's not ultimately healthy. I think for me, nobody's good all the time. And so I had parts of myself that I had to hide from my mom. I felt like I had to hide those things um, because there, you know, there's more to me than the good adoptee. And um, I wanted her approval so bad. I had to hide anything that didn't add up to what I felt was what my mom needed. And, you know, it also, feeds insecurity. If, you know, my mom loved the curated me, that almost tells me she wouldn't love the the rest of me, the whole me. And so then it's not an authentic relationship because it's only based on part of the story. So again, that's just not healthy. This kind of ties back to the both and concept as well. Um, You wanted to be loved for all of you, the, the air quote good and the air quote bad. And to be authentic, you needed to know that you didn't have to be worthy of love, but you had those deeper beliefs about, and, and I think, I I mean, I'm not adopted, but uh, I remember having those two sense worthiness is is probably a developmental thing that a lot of people go through. Um, So you, you have written about kind of pushing the boundary with your mom on this one point um, where you kind of left being the good adoptee and you yelled at her when you were a teenager, you yelled at her in anger and you said, I'm going to go find my real mom. 
So can you explain for us what that explanation was and what it wasn't? Yeah, you know, um, oh yeah, my poor mom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm bracing myself. My kids are on the verge here of adolescence. And I'm like, oh gosh. I mean, I remember at one point my mom saying, someday I hope you have two teenagers just like you and <laughs> two teenage daughters. And uh, I wish she, yeah, I'm sure she's laughing. Um, but yeah, that is real, real mom is something that's so complicated. And, you know, I think any teenager, you know, there's a few, few aspects to this that I want to speak to. I think, you know, most teenagers, we we got to find out what those pain points are for our parents. It's just part of our process and get there. We got to cut to the quick sometimes. And, um, you know, I, for me, I'd learned that telling my mom that I was going to leave and go find my real mother were words that had a lot of power. And, you know, she reacted with hurt feelings. And so it, the words were in fact powerful. That didn't feel good. Um, after the fact, um, you know, it, these are things, you know, when you've got this brain that's going primal and <laughs> developing an adolescence, you don't think through very carefully. It didn't feel good after the fact. Um, um, and I wasn't always using those words as a weapon. I didn't, deep down, I never really, I say, I say that now kind of as an adult. I wasn't intending to hurt her. I didn't want those words to be a weapon. But at the same time, when I say they, I wasn't intending, they were coming without conscious thought. Um, it was coming from an unspoken place of longing and since infancy for my birth mother and feeling the pain over the very real feelings of relinquishment. So um, I, I think what's, what's hard about that um, that I've seen is that it's really hard to not take that personally when you're an adoptive parent. Um, I think it can kind of nod the confidence of, you know, and, and for my mom, you know, she, 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 it was upsetting. She packed my lunches every day. She showed up at all my meets. She was there engaging with my teachers and working in the classroom, doing the, you know, always the, the class, the room mother, the room parent and standing by me through struggles with friends and boyfriends, which of course there were a lot of that kind of adolescent kind of drama and stuff. And so those things are, were absolutely true. My adoptive mom was amazing and just as real. Um, but I think a lot of the real mother goes back to the unrecognized and hidden grief that adoptees have when it's not acknowledged that grief that I kind of spoke to earlier and the first mother are kind of treated as if they don't matter, then I think a lot of adoptees feel this need to have a response to that, that this is real because it, it is real. It's a real dynamic that what, uh, those mothers are real mothers, the first mothers. And so um, it's an unintentional, I think when it's not acknowledged, it can be an unintentional way of gaslighting. Um, and I love that there's that word now to make sense of, um, of so many dynamics for us <laughs> now, but I think um, it's just natural that we're going to have really big feelings of loss and the need to remind ourselves and those around us that the person we had bonded with for nine months, at, at least sometimes in other cases more, is indeed real. So it's that both and, both mothers are real. Um, and I think it can be, you know, a little bit of a, a st sticking point for parents that if they feel the need to keep defending that they're the real mother, then it can like lead to the child, you know, almost to a point of obsession, needing to protect that realness. And, um, you know, it can turn it into a competition when it doesn't need to be. 
um, having two mothers should be a recognized and important part of the adoptee's story. Yeah, and from the adoptive parents' side, it does take a certain amount of healing and strength to be able to withstand being told you're, or hearing, not being told, but hearing that you're not real or that you're less than, because that's sometimes a translation that happens in our brains when we hear that. Um, when maybe that's not what was meant. We're just looking for, you're just looking for validity. Um, and the, the opportunity to, to claim and be claimed by both of your mothers, both of your fathers. Yeah. Exactly. And that doesn't diminish one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. you shared on my blog and I guess post one time, a, a brilliant reframing. And I'm going to read you this quote. Um, you said, I wish my mother had paused to realize the inherent compliment I was giving her when I mentioned finding my real mom. I felt safe enough with her to lash out in anger, but more importantly, secure enough in her love to reveal my inner, deep, usually very private feelings. The person closest to me was my adoptive mom, after all, and I relished sharing myself with her. My deepest yearning was for my adoptive mother to know and love me, all of me. So there's a couple of things in there. One, that it was a compliment, that you were willing to be vulnerable with her and show her your, your true feelings in that moment that came from a maybe even subconscious place. And then the second one is that you wanted her to love the both and of you, all of you. So yeah. can you what do you think adoptive parents can take from this? I think, um, I think the biggest thing is just that reminder not to take your child's feelings personally. It's not about the feelings the emotions are not about you. Um, you know, and again, I mean, back to just, especially adolescence, when a lot of this starts to bubble up, I think, um, you know, just remembering it's, it's kind of, it's normal developmental adolescence in some way too. Um, but with adoptees, this is what kind of tends to come up. So, um, you know, I think stepping outside of ourselves and seeing our children for who they are, um, seeing the immense grief and the frustration that's behind the attacking energy is an opportunity for the relationship relationship to progress to a deeper level. Um, they, they're not going to, they, you know, they're likely not going to admit that it's grief if you call it out right then. Um, I mean, gosh, I mean, especially in the heat of the moment, ado adoptees or any adolescents don't want to admit. <laughs> you're, that's way you're vulnerable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But I think just the fact that even if you know that and it's what you see, it will reframe your perception and I think influence the way that you react. So I think being able to see that will really go a long way in not taking it personally um, because all adolescents are filled to the rim with emotion and especially adoptees. And they don't always make sense to the children and adoptees who are spewing those emotions out. Um, I think for adoptees, we have some very deep wounds and it takes time to get to a place where both the cognitive and the emotional integration can come about. Mm. And it's not all at once. Um, and I don't think it's possible until reaching the maturity on the other side of adolescence. And again, like I said, I had an extended adolescence. So, <laughs> um, you know, Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's, who you mentioned, um, a child developmental psychologist, he often says we all grow older, but not everyone grows up. 
Um, and I, sure, I mean, we see that everywhere in culture. You said, <laughs> wait, um, I, I, you cut out, so let me rephrase. You said, we all grow older, but not everyone grows up? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we all age, but not everyone grows up. And we know that. I mean, we, yeah. we see that everywhere, um, adopt, out, in and out of adoption. But I think, you know, heavy emotions have to go somewhere. And if we're doing our job as parents, raising our children to be functioning members of society on the other side um, of maturity, um, it's our job to just drain that well and be a safe place to drain the well. Um, and be the place where um, the, the kids aren't gonna be expelled or bullied or teased or fired. Um, the person who can see past that attacking energy and help nurture the tears because that's where the adaptation and growth comes and the softness and the balm to that attacking energy. And ultimately that's how we become in the place where our children and our adoptees know that they're loved no matter what. Mm, that, they, that We're not going to be ruffled and we're not going to be hurt or go away, which of course feeds into our story, that our love is solid, can be trusted. The connection can't be broken no matter what. And that's kind of a tall order for parents, but it's also required to be that refuge, even when you feel like you're under attack Yeah. and, and your advice to not take all of that personal is so helpful. Um, you once said, I love um, bringing up your own words to you. You once said that adoption is much more complex and nuanced than we have been led to believe by viral YouTube videos and messaging from adoption agencies or the church. What do you mean by that? And what do adoptive parents need to do in response to the complexity that exists? Yes, they, I'm so appreciative that you asked that, Lori, and I'm so appreciative for just all the ways that you um, are open to hearing um, from adoptees. And this is this is one that that can be um, a trouble spot, I think. You know, um, for sure, I think. And so I say what I'm about to say. I just want to preface by just saying. Um, I, I'm just going to say, um, <laughs> I'm just going to speak honestly and, um, hope that it um, that it can land and that it, it's not offensive in any way. Okay. Um, so everybody listening, take a deep breath so we can hear <laughs> there we <go>. expansive. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, for a lot decades, adoptive parents have been leading the conversation on adoption. And um, not to say that adoption, adoptive parents can't have a voice, but it has been at the silencing of adoptees, and I think it has been detrimental to the adoption and, and relationships and to authentic relationships. The messaging is one-sided. It's not always well thought through um, on how it will land. And, um, you know, it can be presented as a very saccharine, sweet story. Um, Without and, much you know, complexity at all. There's the YouTube, yeah. Um, you know, there there was one last last um, fall that was widely shared of a very young girl parroting her adoption story to her gushing mother, and it went viral. And I was seeing it in many different spaces. It was jarring because I'm seeing it in you know non-adopted spaces where people love that society eats it up it's so cute little kids are adorable and when they're telling cute stories it's super cute um and it's you know but it was in the adoption community it's getting spread around with a different because this child we all know that's been trained into her and not knowingly not on purpose but like hearing only the adoptive parents side of the joyous story 
and then the child parroting it back it's this child trying to be good for her mom and win that love and it's heartbreaking when you you it's like looking in a mirror at yourself when you see that happening and it's very heartbreaking and and hurtful to adoptees to see that and then worrying about you just you can't help but want to wrap this little girl up and like talk directly to that mom like please don't put that pressure on um and that's not to say she doesn't she can't know her story but there is there room there for for more um and and you know just how is she going to find herself later down the road and and you know also there's privacy issues on that too you know i mean i think putting any child's adoption story out there online we adoption and our perception changes as we grow and so um we just don't know where it's going to go later and so we've got to be really careful early on um at any point of the journey of how much we're sharing of that story um and frankly there's a lot of messaging around adoption that can be very hurtful um and it's really hard to recognize once it becomes so widely used and i think you know i was thinking about this last night even just some of the vernacular of phrases like killing two birds with one stone or don't beat a dead horse those are phrases a lot of us say all the time and without thought it, we're not thinking of actually killing birds or horses but it's just become part of common kind of vernacular and i think in the adoption space there's a lot of that too um, there's words such as forever home and gotcha day that are insensitive from adoptees and birth family perspectives um, it those kinds of words, you know, present adoption as if it's a light and breezy thing um, and center adoptive parents as victors over others oppression and pain. Um, and so that's just not, you know, that can be hurtful. And so that's um, part of that. Um, you know, a lot of the messaging is about how much love your birth mother had for you that she found this other family for you that's very common um it was common when in my era and it still reigns a lot today and it's confusing she um, loved you so much she gave you away right yeah and you know i mean i think that's carried over into my marriage as an adult means leaving i mean that's <laughs> that's how it lands like love means leaving and so i mean my, my poor husband i'm constantly looking for the exit doors um it's really hard to be like serious about love um you know it, from the adoptee point of view i just if we really pause to consider an adoptee's you know voices were more out there then we would be a little bit more careful about ramifications i know we don't want for our for our children nobody wants to you know help to have a hand in that you know another one um this was just said to me the other day so this is fresh i had someone say to me um adoption is the the most noble thing a parent can do and so it's that presentation of the adoptive parents as saviors um and um saving this child from doom and gloom whatever the other situation was and certainly sometimes that is the case for sure um, um, but it's also presenting it as one-sided if it were 100 percent about the child then family preservation and socioeconomic programs um, to support struggling mothers would be a higher priority as well so it doesn't mean that adoption doesn't save children but it just means that we have to remember not to water down that mainstream messaging so much where it makes it seem so simple and straightforward because there are benefits all the way around. And it, yeah, I guess a theme of our conversation, the both and. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And then, you know, back to the church, I mean, the church, I grew up in the church. And so I heard a lot of talk about how adoption and my adoption was God's will and how I was God's gift to my family. And I, um, you know, these are things that I know are true for, um, for the parent's perspective. And um, I believe with my faith, I believe, I believe, I have come to believe, I think, you know, God has been taking care of me all along. Um, but I think being overly effusive about God's divine plans when it comes to adoption, just again, discounts the loss and the first family struggles. It kind of, it, it just, without meaning to, it sends a message about that first family that um, isn't honoring uh, to the first family. And, and by not honoring that first family, it can create that divide um, because the adoptee feels stuck in the middle. So, um, and, you know, I, I think it also unknowingly sends the message that God is all about our adoptive parents. And it reinforces that belief that we have, we just kind of tend to have as adoptees that we don't matter and it can silence us and alienate us from the God that in, in faith-based families that those families are wanting to point the children to. So um, it's, you know, just with caution and yeah, I apologize if I'm rambling now. No, it's, it's super helpful to understand um, from your perspective that uh, one of the, some of the things that make us feel good for um, saving or rescuing when in some ways I was saved um, that creates a dynamic of discounting the birth family. And when you discount the birth family, you're discounting a large part of the adopted person because they are of the birth family. So there's so much more behind the platitudes that we see on those YouTube videos, viral ones, and what we see on adoption agency um, sites and what we see, um, what we hear from the church, then there's a lot more behind it that, that needs to be thought about before we start perpetuating the simplicity, the simple stances. There's, there's a lot behind it. Um, I always ask my guests to boil down the best piece of advice that you have for adoptive parents about the long view. So what is yours? I would say, um, you know, I, again, it's the theme. I would say, do your best to get comfortable with the complexity of adoption. I think the more comfortable we can all be in that, the less likely we're going to be to simplify the story, to take the dynamics personally. Um, And the more likely we're going to be to really see our children, um, the full children, um, and convey that everything inside them is welcome, that there's room for all of it. It's a no strings attached kind of love. Um, And just reinforcing that no matter what, you're never going away. Um, And that's just opening the door for trust and authenticity. yeah, I think, you know, I would also say just play a listening role like you're doing right now. <laughs> um, if you're still listening here and like Lori, you're doing, um, you know, listen to adult adoptee voices. Um, and, you know, we're not always easy to hear. And, um, you know, I will speak for myself and others. Sometimes there's still some anger under there and some of that attacking energy. And so, you know, I think before discounting it, just keep listening, just keep listening to lots of different sources and it'll be easy to sort out what is and isn't relevant. I think often we tend to be discounted if the specifics of our adoption aren't the same or, um, you know, 
you know, any number of reasons to discount, oh, that's not the case for me. But just if you keep listening over time, what, what is, what should be relevant will, and what could be relevant later will bubble to the surface. So, you know, every story is different. And so I think just, you know, hang in there, um, hang in there. And I think, you know, I will say my mom and I, um, I mean, I've, this, this, I've, you know, the full story, Lori, through the book, but um, I will say my mom and I, we got there. It, we got to a place of really deep love and connection, but it did take a long time and it makes me really sad how long it took. It took, it didn't happen until my mom was dying um, that I was able to fully trust um, that she loved the whole me. And I never even really fully tested that until she was dying. And um, I, that just makes me sad. And so I do have a strong wish for more authentic relationships. So I say just, there's always hope, uh, persevere, keep the faith, keep going. Um, and it, it will, it, it, I do believe it can get there. And I really hope it does. Mm. What, uh, I'm watching you uh, being privy to the story of you and your adoptive mother um, and the healing that happened with all of that was just Wonderful. I, I so enjoyed reading that. So we are going to put show notes, um, information about how to reach Sarah into the show notes. You can find her at sarahesterly.com. Sarah does not have an H on it. And we'll have a link to her book. And Sarah, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your heart today and um, helping all of us better understand your experience and what adoption feels like from your perspective. Lori, thank you so much. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing through this show. I'm just so excited about it and honored to be a part of it. Thank you. I think my biggest talent is finding fantastic guests. So thanks all of you for joining us with each episode of Adoption, The Long View. We bring you guests that will expand your knowledge of adoptive parenting. Please subscribe, give this episode a rating, and share with others who are on the journey of adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of you listeners for tuning in and investing in your adoption's long view. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, capability, and compassion.